Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is Mike again, and it's uh, nothing but the truth. One man's journey found it, and I found it in my Lord Savior Jesus Christ. And uh, today, I have uh, Larry Phillips on, and we're going to be discussing Arminianism, um, the roots of it, and how it has affected us to this day, um, um, to the best of our ability. On this show, um, as we're discussing a little earlier before the show, um, this goes back quite a ways, actually. More to think about it. I just a recording of uh, Richard Bennett talking about <clears throat> Catholicism. The original uh, the video is called "The Original Early Christian Church Was Not a Roman Catholic System of Salvation," and you know, talking all the way back from the time of the first century, the dealing with this debate, this argument between those who feel that. Uh, uh, well, those of us who have come to understand that um, the sovereignty of God and that His grace is given, imparted grace on us, uh, uh, given to us by Him, not, nothing that we do. And then there's those these folks that feel that uh, they can um, earn salvation through their own works and merits. And so something that's been going on for quite a while, so <laughs> 2,000 years at least, probably since the beginning of time, <laughs> actually. Um, um, but, well, I don't know, Larry, where do we begin with this? Where would you, where would you well, like to start? Well, actually, what I'd like to start, uh, of course, with, um, with your permission, it, it's your program, but I, I'd like to read just a, uh, a passage out of the 10th chapter of John, I think is a good starting point to help define the difference between Arminianism and biblical truth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the poor earth open, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. <clears throat> and then I want to go on down to uh, the uh, seventh verse. Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door by him. If any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is a hireling, and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth, because he is a hireling, and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. 
as the Father knoweth me, even so I know the Father, I have the Father, and the laid, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, of course, speaking of the Gentiles. And they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down on myself. I have power to lay it down, I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Now, just going down to the 26th verse, he says, uh, 25th, I told you, and you believe not the works that I do in my Father's name. They bear witness of me, but you believe not, because you are not of my sheep. As I said, you, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. So I'll stop there and just say I concur with what your original statement uh, that you made is, and that is that Arminianism started in heaven <laughs> between Lucifer <laughs> and God when he said, uh, in his own heart, I will rise and be his God. That is, in a nutshell, that is what Arminianism is. It is replacing uh, the shepherd with a hireling, a wolf. Um, and that's exactly what Lucifer was. He was a hireling. He, in other words, he was a non-elect angel, uh, and he was created such. And uh, he he fulfilled out. He fulfilled the purpose of God in eternity perfectly when he found in his heart the desire to come up against the Almighty God. And of course, he fell and took a third of the angels down to the earth with him. And uh, and now we have the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. And the rest of the rest of the story, you know, uh, you can go all the way through the New Testament church history, uh, but you can see it now evidenced in the tenth chapter of John, where Jesus Christ, during his ministry, was coming against um, the the same doctrine. It wasn't called Arminianism there but it was called uh, coming up some other way, being thieves and robbers. And uh, as you progress on through Christ's ministry, he came up against this doctrine all during his whole three and a half years of ministry. Uh, that's why he was hated, because he was proclaiming himself to be him. And he was proclaiming that he and his father were one, and the Pharisees and the Jews, those of the synagogue of Satan, uh, were taking up stones to stone him, and eventually they did, by wicked hands, take and crucify him. And so then we, as we proceed on down through history, and feel free to stop me any time if I get going too fast. I have a history of doing that, of course. Uh, but uh, <laughs> the fifth, the fifth uh, century, I mean, we see that. Uh, there's really nothing new under sun. I mean, essentially, Arminian controversies a rerun, okay, again, over and over and over again. We see that Pelagius, uh, who was a British monk, and Augustine, which was Bishop of Hippo, uh, had this same controversy. You know, uh, Pelagius denied original sin. He denied uh, that man was in a depraved state. And, of course, he he denied all five points of the biblical 
tenets of Scripture. And, of course, Augustine upheld those five points. And we can go through those again, but um, the interesting thing about these two two people is that they were both born in the same year, and they were in a continual struggle uh, against each other's doctrine their whole continual lives. In fact, it got to the point where a whole groups of people were taking one side or the other. And uh, as we go on through uh, what happened with Pelagius and, and uh, Augustine, um, it was this was hammered out in the halls of discourse <laughs> between them. And, um, you know, free grace has always been held by true believers. And, and uh, then, of course, those who held a Pelagian view. Uh, I mean, Pelagian started out being pretty solid, but he started making little uh, changes in his doctrine to where he became a... Um, a person who really denied the tenets of the faith of original sin, and he also uh, said that man could finally fall from grace by his own will, and he said that man had the ability in and of himself to perfectly keep the commandments of God. Now, it's course, interesting about Pelagius here because you know here's a he's a monk from Britain. You know, uh, he lived a monkish or monasterian type life, and uh, so he comes to Rome, and they were both born in the same year, and I think it was I can't remember it was three fifty two or three forty two, yeah. and uh, <clears throat> goes to Rome. He's seeing the wickedness of these, uh, the, you know, Rome. <laughs> You know, for thousands of years, folks, it's just been a cesspool of sin. It really has been. And um, uh, and uh, the, he saw the debauchery that was going on around him and all the... And, um, now, I'm not giving him any uh, breaks here. I'm just trying to understand where he's coming from. So, And something happened as he was there. He saw that, that the, you know, these people were walking around saying, you know, this, these, using the same excuses today where... Well, you know, I'm I'm a sinner, and there's nothing I can do about it, so I'm just going to keep on being a sinner type of thing attitude. You know what I mean? I'm just going to live right, my what? Right, right. So he was hoping, you know, some way of how can I change these people? How can I make the church grow and all that kind of stuff? And he, there is relevance we're going to bring in here team today. We see what's going on in the modern church, and that is that uh, this whole attitude of uh, well, basically, uh, well. well we are going to do the work that God does, actually. You know, we're going to take control of the things here, and we're going to help God out, basically. We're going to help God and <laughs> save his elect, and uh, we're going to make it easier on everybody, and uh, we're going to make it more palatable and more acceptable. And all we see today, even in this uh, the modern church today, with uh, this whole idea of um, you know, saying that women can be, you know, Run churches and the congregation and be pastors and whatever reverends and or you know the, the gay thing and just making it more acceptable and more up to date and more um, 
uh, in line with uh, the people of the times type of thing. And I see the same thing. It's just, it's a way of presenting the gospel in a way that's palatable for, well, the goats. What do you think? Well, well, I think that, you know, there was two things going on. One is, you know, Augustine of Hippo had earlier had a very uh, depraved lifestyle. He was a... <laughs> he was yeah, well, he's one of us. And he came to yeah, he was a fornicator and the whole nine yards. <laughs> and... Uh, and I and I'm sure there was some of that <clears throat> self righteousness going on with Blade just when he looked at and saw that he'd had a pretty moral life, thank you very much. And then he compared it over with Augustine and he said, you know, um, who does he think he is? I mean, you know, he uh and, and oftentimes we see this happening, you know, with people for an example, just take one area, adultery, you know. People don't understand the implications of what adultery is. I mean, adultery, you know, begins in the heart, out of the heart issues, uh, all kind of things, you know, adultery, lying, theft, all of that. And it's not just the physical act. And of course, the physical act of adultery, um, you know, is, you know, most women will not divorce a, a man uh, because he might look at some pornography. But if he goes out, you know, fornicating around all over the place, then they'll, <laughs> they're ready to divorce him. Uh, my point is this, that, you know, the people that don't go out and do these outward sins in the public publicly um, are often, you know, much more looked down upon than those like Pelagius who, you know, uh, lived a high moral standing life. It's, uh, you know, he... Like you said, he arrived in Rome in the 5th century, spent most of his life, you know, in that city, studying, writing, teaching theology. And and as a result, he started asserting, you know, the self-governing ability of man, you know. And so he figured, you know, look what I've done. And if I can do it, anybody can do it. And um, he ended up being, you know, condemned as a heretic because... You know, the, the the fact remains that you look at the Renaissance period and you compare and contrast Catholicism, Socianism, Arminianism, Humanism, Liberalism, all of that is really one and the same because it says there's no inherited guilt. I mean, Locke, I remember studying Locke, John Locke. <laughs> you remember John Locke? Blank slate. You have a blank slate. And, you know, there's no such thing as original sin. I mean, I was just sharing this with Jerry earlier. You know, when I worked for the state of Missouri, I had up over my desk a picture of deer, you know, uh, down at the water brook. And then uh, down where the deer were drinking the water, I typed up a little piece of paper and I put on there, abortion equals a premeditated murder of innocent defenseless victims. Well, that's the biggest lie that ever I put on anything. You know, yeah, and <laughs> uh, babies aren't innocent, defenseless victims. They're not innocent, that's for certain. They might be defenseless, but they're born and conceived in sin. And there's this whole thing of innocency from the womb, and some people believe it can be from the womb to the tomb because they say that it's actual sin that causes separation from God, and the people have the ability, this moral ability, to keep the law of God perfectly. So moving on, I mean, I don't want to spend too much time on Pelagius. And do you have any other questions about? I mean, Pelagius really 
was... Well, there's Pelagianism, and then we've got to go into semi-Pelagianism to lead us into Arminianism. Would you agree? That's right. I mean, yeah. I mean, you could say, well, uh, let's talk about, you know, how does Roman Catholicism get to uh, endorse and call its greatest asset Arminianism? Well, it's really through the semi-Pelagian view, which is that... Um, you know, if God commands anything, we must be able to obey it. That's really what it's. Uh, and and then it goes to the next step that says that um, potentiality. In other words, all men have the potentiality for salvation, and it's their free will that separates them from that actually happening. And so, the the semi-Pelagian view is what is called a halfway house uh, between biblical doctrine and heresy but in in a nutshell it's heresy semi-pelagian is as heretical as staunch pelagianism because uh let me just read one uh the conclusion of the canons of the council of orange oh after they uh, came to the realization that uh, pelagius was was actually it sounds like this, count, this council. By the way, this council of Orange sounds like quite an ordeal. That was quite. Uh, uh, I would describe this a uh, the reverberation, the the, uh, the earthquake that was created from this council of Orange. It was a big deal. <laughs> something that no one was very big. About. I mean, basically, uh, they they were proclaiming Pelagius to be anathema. I mean, in other words, they were saying that you know he is not. He is he's a heretic of all heretics, you know. Thus, according to the passage of Holy Scripture quoted above, or the interpretation of the ancient father, we must under the blessing of God preach and believe as follows the sin of first man has no impaired and weakened free will, and that no one thereafter can either love God as he ought or believe in God or do good for God's sake unless the grace of divine mercy has preceded him. In other words, what they're saying there is that the Spirit boweth where it listeth, and no man knoweth the sound thereof, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit of God. That's, we therefore believe that the glorious faith which was given to Abel, the righteous, and Noah, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and to all the saints of old, in which the Apostle Paul commends in extolling them, was not given through natural goodness as it was before to Adam, but was bestowed by the grace of God, and we know and also believe that even after the coming of our Lord, this grace is not to be found in the free will of all who desire to be baptized, but is bestowed by the kindness of Christ, as he has already been frequently stated, and as the apostle declares, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Philippians 1.29. And again, he who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion of the day of Christ. Philippians 1.6. And again, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your uh, works. It's a gift of God. And as the Apostle says, I've obtained mercy to be faithful, 1 Corinthians 7.25. So there's there's a lot of passages that they allude to. But the bottom line is is that uh, Augustine was the first of the church fathers, so to speak, to codify the doctrines of grace and to confront and refute you know, impostors of free will and salvation. He actually recorded preaching and writings against Pelagius, and I mean, voluminous. I mean, volumes and volumes of of, of work that he did confronting 
um, these teachings. And um, Arminius, who was to follow, really was doing nothing more than embracing, you know, the false teachings of semi-Pelagian and Pelagian views. And, now, would uh, this also be synergism as well? Or well, I think I think it well it it results in synergism. Okay. It results in that because whenever you purport or you hold the presupposition that man is morally neutral, <laughs> okay, at birth, and it's only by his actual sins committed that brings separation from him and God, then the synergism uh, takes place with you know all manner like we've like I've stated before in my own experience is that those who hold uh, strong who say they are they, they don't say they're just agnostics but they they hold a strong humanistic atheistic philosophical perspective are the greatest proponents of free will because they they believe as well that you're born John Locke blank slate and that you have ability to determine your own destiny and so on. So that that really you know, is, and I think for the value of time and for the you know chronology here, what we probably might be best serve our listeners is to now really go into the aspect of uh, Jacobus Arminius and and what happened as a result of him his coming on the scene because. I think that uh, this has had a tremendous impact on Christendom uh, down, I mean, ever since 1500s. Uh, you know, now Jacobus, or James, Jacob Arminius, he was Dutch, and he studied, um, and he actually uh, changed his position. You know, again, he began to preach and teach a man-centered gospel against people I mean, absolutely against people like Calvin and Luther and Cranmer and Latimer and Zwingli and Knox and and many of the other great preachers uh, who taught, you know, the centrality of the grace of God and his faith of gift alone for salvation in Lord Lord Jesus Christ. And and so the Christ-centered gospel was, in a nutshell, the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, okay? And... um, you know, Paul said that I may win Christ and be found him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. And so then the question is, you know, how did this man-centered salvation come into uh, the New Testament church uh, in, you know, in this in this time frame? And uh, well, when, did, was, when did when did uh, Jacob Ar- Arminian, what his name is, music. No, he lived from 1560 to 1609. So he's in the same time period as the Counter Reformation. Okay. Yeah, and 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 you know we see that dualism present itself all the way through. Like we say, God always has a a part and a counterpart. <laughs> okay. Always, always. Uh, and, you know, we start with Lucifer, and and then we end up the the battle between you know Lucifer and Christ. You know, but. Um, but moving forward, um, you know, if you look at the Reformation, um, there was a there was a tremendous battle going on between um, those who held a ref- 
you know, the biblical tenets of the Christian faith, as I um, pointed out, in these people. And not only Jacob, Jacob, Jacob Arminius, but also he had a tremendous amount of followers. And he started out by saying that, denying that uh, the scriptures, that there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none to understand. There's none that seeks after God. And he actually said that man did seek after God. He said that man had a natural ability within himself. He said that man was not dead in his trespasses and sin, that he was wounded by sin. And we're going to see down the road that that is where John Wesley got his doctrine, was from Pelagius and Arminius. And uh, he taught that the very dignity of man requires... Uh, that God should glorify, uh, should glorify God in his body and uh, not allow it to serve the evil inclinations of his heart. And, and when he's drawn to think about himself, he turns to those deep recesses of you know being where God who probes the heart awaits him and where he himself decides his own destiny in the sight of God. And so Arminianism then, like, like semi-Pelagianism, began to be described as a halfway house to Roman Catholicism. In other words, as being responsible for much of the growth of the ecumenical movement. And we saw earlier in the Council of Trent that that term ecumenical was actually a Catholic term. And so that today, fast forward, I mean, when we talk about ecumenicalism or ecumenism, uh, realize that that sprung from the Council of Trent and their 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 technique was to try to to bring people you know who separated brethren into a halfway house so that they could say well here's what it is man has a free will and Christianity and Roman Catholicism are equal in that regard and that's one thing we can agree upon okay and. Uh, <clears throat> There's a guy, his name is Lorraine Bettner. I don't agree with everything Lorraine Bettner writes, but he wrote a book called The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, and he says, quote, Arminianism existed for centuries only as a heresy on the outskirts of true religion, and in fact, it was not championed by the organized Christian church until the year 1784, at which time it was incorporated into the system of the doctrine of the Methodist Church in England by John Wesley. Now the reason I stated that before, you know, we're in, we're in the middle of Arminianism and Roman Catholicism and, and, and the halfway house between, but understand down through history, Arminianism has been considered to be grossly heretical by the Orthodox Christian Church. Um, now it says here, <clears throat> I'm going to read this: "The Road Back to Rome" by August. Augustus Toplady, we know who he is. He wrote Rock of Ages and a lot of other songs. And this is a quote by Augustus Toplady. Quote, The Jesuits were molded into a regular body towards the middle of the 16th century, toward the close of the same century. Arminius began to infect the Protestant churches. It needs, therefore, no great penetration to discern from what source he drew his poison. Now, what Augustus Toplody is saying is the Jesuits were the ones that trained Arminius in this doctrine. He goes on to say his journey, his meaning 
um, you know, Arminius, his journey to Rome was not for nothing. If, however, they are disposed to believe that Arminius imbibed his doctrines from the Socinians in Poland, you know, he's saying he beg, begs to differ. In other words, he says it was through the disciples of Loyola where, <clears throat> and he has some strong evidence here to show that that is exactly where um, Jacobus Arminius derived his doctrines from. And a short time later, we see in 1627, there was a letter that was discovered and um, written by a Jesuit. Um, and here's what it says. We have now many strings to our bow. We have planted the sovereign drug Arminianism, which we hope will purge the Protestants from their heresy. <laughs> and it flourisheth and beareth fruit in due season. I am at this time transported with joy to see how happily all instruments and means as well, great as smaller, cooperate with our purposes. But to return to the main fabric, our foundation is Arminianism. This is from a Jesuit letter discovered. And so we see this Ar Arminianism just, I mean, just perpetrated throughout uh, this time time period. And, um, you know, what happened as a result of that, we see that uh, Arminius uh, and his followers began to openly attack the five biblical tenets of the Christian faith that many people call Calvinism. I don't, because it's not; these were not from Calvin. Calvin would have gone along with these teachings, but Calvin's not the one that uh, came up with the because this the the, the actual five points of Calvinism was actually a response, okay, to the, the false doctrines purported by the remonstrance, or the remonstrance meaning, some people call it remonstrance, some people call it remonstrance, um, those who were representatives of um, Arminian. And let me just go through those quickly. Um, the, first, the first point that the people that followed uh, uh, Jacobus Arminius is free will or human ability. They believe the fall of man was not total, maintaining that there is enough virtue in man to enable him to choose to accept Jesus Christ unto salvation. Number two, they believed in conditional election. Arminius taught that election is based on the foreknowledge of God as to who would believe. <laughs> Man's act of faith is the condition governing his being elected to eternal life since God foresaw him exercising his free will in response to Christ. So in other words, the idea is you look down through the portals of time, God does, and he sees who are going to choose him and who aren't. Um, that's the Arminian view. The third Arminian view, of course, is universal atonement. We see that example exemplified in the Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal, endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights, right to liberty and the pursuit of happiness, and so on. Arminius held that Christ died to save all men, but only in a potential fashion. That's semi-Pelagianism. Christ's death enabled God to pardon sinners, but only on the condition that they believed. <laughs> okay, The uh, 
uh, fourth point of Arminian is that he believed that since God wants all men to be saved, and again, that's taken from Peter 3.9, 2 Peter 3.9, you know, God is not willing that any should perish, um, but all should come to repentance, leaving out the two most important words, to usward, meaning his elect. Arminius believed that God wants all men to be saved. He sends the Holy Spirit to draw all men to Christ, but since man has absolute free will, he is able to resist God's will for his life. Therefore, God's will to save all men can be frustrated by the will of man. Arminius also taught that man exercises his own will first, and then is born again. <laughs> okay, I will arise and be as God. And then the last one is falling from grace. If man cannot be saved by God unless it is man's will to be saved, then man cannot continue in salvation unless he continues to will to be saved. So that was in a nutshell uh, their view. Well, as a result of that, in uh, 1618, a group of people, of theologians, uh, very very respected theologians, uh, got together, 154 sessions of the, uh, meetings, um, and they decided they were going to come against these false teachings. Um, and here's what one of the main principles of that Sinodor had to say about this. Quote, they had among their leaders some of the most foremost theologians of their day, and the conclusion at which they arrived in the vow of their faith and in the condemnation of error uh, were not hastily come to. They were the right decisions of a generation of theologians who were at home in their subject, expert in wielding their weapons and temperate and restrained in the terms in which they set forth their judgment, coming as they did in point of time after the national confessions and catechisms of the Reformed churches, except the documents of the Westminster Assembly, they with these documents of the British origin are the culminating exhibition of our common Reformed faith when it was called upon to unfold its inmost genius and essence and self-defense against the revised semi-Pelagianism of the early Ar Arminians. And, uh, you know, they... Now, I will just say this, that all of these responses from this Synod of Dort um, to the Armenian Remonstrants were taken directly out of the Bible, you know. And, you know, I mean, I'm not going to go through all the proof texts, Jonah 2, 9, Acts 13, 48, Galatians 4, 3, Romans 8, 28 to 30, Ephesians 1, 4 through 11, Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5, John 15, 16, Romans 11, 5, Ephesians 2, 5, John 10, 11, and on and on and on. But <clears throat> the first, first one, total depravity, you know referring to what it says in Ephesians, that we're dead in our trespasses and sin. Man is utterly dead. They have no capacity to do good or to exercise faith or do anything else apart from the sovereign act and grace of God. You know, it's a gift. And, of course, the second one, unconditional election, opposed to this conditional election, you know, they take it from Scripture that mankind are predestinated unto life. You know, that God works all things after the counsel of his own will, that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, and so on. And, of course, the third one's limited atonement, or particular redemption, whatever 
phrase you want to apply, but we read it in John 10. You know, Christ died only for his sheep. There are a lot of those that are climbing up some other way. They're thieves and robbers, but Christ made it clear who he was and who he died for. And then the next one was irresistible grace. And, you know, those that believe the Bible believe that God, God's grace cannot be resisted. You know, a good example of that would be the Apostle Paul thrown off his horse and it would, you know, get up and it will be told thee what thou must do. Okay, that's irresistible grace. Paul was going one way, and, uh, you know, we see, of course, one of my favorite passages alludes to that, all the Father giveth me shall come to me. That's why they call a lot of the old Baptist hard shells, because of the shells. All the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me, I will no wise cast out. And finally, the perseverance of the saints, um, you know, there are many, many pit passages that say that God is going to preserve his sheep. You know, all that the Father will give me will come to me, and all that come to me I will in no wise cast out. No man can pluck them out of my hand. No man can pluck them out of my Father's hand. Who can separate us from the love of God? And on and on and on we can find scriptures in that. And so as a result of this uh, coming against Arminius, of course, um, we have two sects, S-E-C-T-S. We have the sect of the free willers, and now we have the sect of, you, if you want to call it the sovereign grace people, those who are up, upholding the sovereign grace of God. And we see that as a result of that, if we fast forward contemporary to where we are today, um, I would say, you know, without hesitation, uh, at least 95% of all denominations today are hold either a semi-Pelagian, Pelagian, or Arminian view. Now, in the 18th century, we know that uh, there was a big, what was called an awakening, <laughs> the Great Awakening, led by George Whitfield and John Wesley. And, of course, Whitfield was uh, strong in the doctrines of grace, and how he how he ended up uh, getting in the same camp with John Wesley was because they both attended Oxford University, and both of them were in the Holy Club, <laughs> which uh, was rank Arminian. Um, and uh, God, in His grace, brought George Whitfield to understand the doctrines of grace, and uh, it resulted in a great, great division between Whitfield and Wesley. In fact, um, here's a quote from Whitfield, um, you know, as to what happened as a result of Wesley's endeavors. He says, quote, sad tares have been sown here, he wrote, it will require some time to pluck them up. The doctrines of the gospel are sadly run down and most monstrous errors are propagated. By sad terrors, monstrous errors, West, Whitfield was referring not only to the Wesleys dressing up the doctrine of election in such horrible colors, but also, you know, Wesley's perfectionism teaching that, in fact, he said that he had met a fellow that had been under Wesley's instructions and said that he'd come to a condition of being entirely sin sinless. And, you know, Whitfield heard people assert that they had uh, reach sinless perfection and all of that stuff. And um, uh, 
So it resulted in Whitfield taking Wesley to task over this, and the only reason I'm going into this is because this is this is what where we're at right today. There's you know there's a lot of people that are condemning you know they call people new Calvinism and hyper Calvinism and antinomianism and all of this. Well, nothing's new under the sun. Uh, here's the letter. That uh, Whitfield wrote to Wesley. Go ahead. Do you have a comment? Yeah, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about this antinomianism. What exactly is that? I've been hearing that a lot. Yeah, uh, antinomianism. It just means uh, lawless. Lawless. Now, I like the word term. You know, if people if people want to say Larry's antinomian, I am. Because I do not, I do not believe you can perfectly keep the law of God. I believe that we're under the new covenant. We're under a higher, a higher law, and the new covenant is that of uh, that God has given us the gift of faith and grace. And so, when people call me an antinomian, I usually say, "Well, thank you, thank you very much." Well, it seems, is, is this a uh, derogative term? In I guess oh, it's the, very derogative yeah. because what they do is they try to say that. You believe that you can sin in word, thought, and deed every day and be a Christian. In other words, you can just go out there and just commit sins at will, which is, by the way, is impossible if you're an elect child of God because you have the restraining hand of God on you, the preserving hand of God. I'm not saying a person never succumbs to sin, but that's not the tenure of an elect child of God. I mean, you know, he says, if, we, if you love me, keep my commandments and so on. But my point is this, is that an elect child of God is not going to be out fornicating his brains out, you know, uh, becoming drunken and and exhorting, ex, doing extortion from the widows and and uh, raping and pillaging. But the point that I am trying to make to people by saying thank you for the compliment is that I am not under the law. I'm under I'm under grace. And if you want to call me lawless, <laughs> I am lawless. I don't. I'm not going to subscribe to one day over another day. I'm not going to subscribe to laws of man or creeds of man. I'm subscribing to a higher law, which is the faith of Christ. And um, you'll find that those people who are subscribed to the new covenant, uh, I'll just put my experience has been. Okay, I don't. Want, I, I can't speak for other people. My experience has been those who do not put themselves under the law live a much, much more moral life and a much, much less dominated by sin than those that do put themselves under the moral law, okay, because they are not trusting in the faith of Christ. They're trusting in their own works righteousness, just like Richard Bennett was talking about where he was you know, hitting himself with a whip on the backs until almost blood came out and all of those works that we talked about. But let me read this letter. Do you, you want Before I do, do you want to ask any other questions on that? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Quote, from some, from some time before, and especially since my last departure from England, this is again what Phil writing to Wesley, both in public and private by preaching and printing, you have been propagating the doctrine of universal redemption. And when I remember how Paul reproved Peter for his dissimulation, we know what that was, that was regarding the circumcision. That's my comment. I fear I've been sinfully silent for too long. 
Oh, then be not angry with me, dear and honored sir. If I now I delivered my soul by telling you that I think you this you in this you greatly err. I shall only make a few remarks upon your sermon entitled Free Grace. Now this this is Whitfield's response to Wesley's sermon on free grace. Now look what Wesley does. It's be be careful when you listen to listen to sermons called free grace, folks. Be listen. Be careful when you listen to su- certain sermons on sermon audio called free grace. You'll get your boat loaded. I'll tell you that. Okay, honored sir, how could it enter into your heart and chase a text to disprove the doctrine of election? Now the eighth of Romans, where this doctrine is so plainly asserted. Indeed, honored sir, is plain beyond all contradiction that the Apostle Paul, through the whole eighth of Romans, is speaking of the privileges of only those who are really in Christ. And let any unprejudiced person read what goes before and what follows your text, and he must confess, all only signified those that are in Christ. Had anyone a mind to prove the doctrine of election as well as a final perseverance, he could hardly wish for a text more fit for this purpose. But yet you have chosen this text to disprove election. After the first paragraph, I scarce know whether you mentioned it so much as once through your whole sermon, but your discourse, in my opinion, is as little to the purpose as your text. Instead of warping, does more and more confirm me in the belief of the doctrine of eternal election. I shall not mention how illogically you have proceeded. Without the belief of the doctrine of election, and the immutability of the free love of God, I cannot see how it is possible that any should have a comfortable assurance of God's eternal salvation. I must speak freely. I believe you're fighting so strenuously against the doctrine of election and pleading so vehemently for a sinless perfection are among the reasons or culpable causes why you're kept out of the liberties of the gospel. And from that full assurance of faith, that they enjoy, who have experimentally tasted and daily fed upon God's electing everlasting love. The doctrine of universal redemption, as you set it forth, is really the highest reproach upon the dignity of the Son of God and the merit of his blood. Consider whether it be not rather blasphemy to say as you do, Christ not only died for those that are saved, but also those that perish. Well, you can see... That was the controversy between Whitfield and Wesley. And uh, as a result of that, by the way, one of John Wesley's last statements to his brother kind of gives further evidence to Whitfield's um, suspicions. Because Wesley said to his brother, I never knew God. I never knew God. And what a what a proclamation after starting the Methodist Church, and and uh, and we see as a result after the Great Awakening, you know, notice how they always put these little, you know, strong adjectives to their movements. What was the new? What was the new after the after the Great Awakening? What was the new one? The new revivalism. Everything's new. Everybody's looking for something new. They don't want to stick with the old paths of the gospel. And revivals changed into revivalism, and it changed as a subjective experience, you know. And in the first 19th century of the 19th century, the holiness movement, by the way, that's where I came out of, uh, swept through both America and Europe. 
this new revivalism was uh, a victory of pragmatism over the authority of Scripture again. It was pragmatic. Um, you know, it worked, but it really was, you know, now this is, uh, um, you know, this this is a, a quote um, by the so-called Second Great Awakening, which sprang out of the Holy Spirit movement in the late 1820s and 1830s. But there was an author, Michael Bunker, suggested that this was just a Jesuitical backlash against the staunch grace doctrines. Yes, it was. It was a counter-reformation. They were using their doctrine. They were using their medicine, their drug, Arminianism. You know, and uh, it, it de-emphasized the merits of Jesus Christ and him crucified and emphasized on getting people to make a decision. And the big celebrity in the new revivalism, of course, was Charles Gradison Finney, 1792 to 1875. And he was a man who really created decisionism, you know. He led people to an altar call, and he pressured people to decide for Christ. And, you know, you cannot find any altar calls in the New Testament church, you know. And, you know, in his day, Finney was, I mean, extremely influential. I mean, he still is today. I mean, Finney is, I know certain people that just, they would live and die, you know, being a follower of Charles Finney, including my mother. He's been described as the icon of modern evangelicalism. In fact, uh, Jerry Falwell said that, you know, Finney was his, his hero. And Billy Graham said Finney was his hero. And so Finney was the one that brought in this second awakening and began conducting revivals in upstate New York. And one of his most popular sermons was entitled, quote, Sinners Bound to Change Their Own Hearts, end quote. I mean, this was so popular. People loved this sermon. Why was it so palatable to the flesh? Because people want to think that they're in charge of their own destiny. You know, and uh, his new measures brought about a whole new era of Christian evangelicalism. It included an anxious seat, a mourner's bench, invitation of altar calls. He instituted emotional tactics that led to fainting and weeping and excitement and all kind of crazy stuff. In fact, uh, Pastor Fred Zaspel, who was... Uh, focusing on the impact of Finney and his new revivalism. Uh, here's what he had to say about it. Quote, he could work a crowd to fever pitch and to fanaticism of various forms. Fainting, shakings, weepings. Sounds like, you know, what happened up there in Toronto, you know, barking like dogs and all that stuff. Decisions for Christ were made. Sinners made professions of faith. This is the foundation of Finneyism, which lives today. Revival can be brought down in a briefcase. It's not a supernatural work of God. It's simply the right use of constituted means. And this is the fountain of his new measure, which are so well known to us today. And uh, Finney himself <laughs> writes with considerable embarrassment after all these Western revivals were over. He said, you know, they just didn't stick. <laughs> he says, he admits, you know, that uh, because of all this emotionalism stuff, 
uh, people were turned off like never before. I mean, uh, they they realized that their decisionism were spirit, you know, were just fake. And um, but this is still the fountainhead of all modern Christianity today. I mean, look at all the church growth seminars and the Beth Moores and the Joyce Myers and the uh, Gloria Copelands and the and the King Copelands and the uh, ecumenical movements with Rome and so on. But anyway. Um, uh, there's a, a guy, Michael Horton, wrote of the revivalist mo- uh, movement in this modern Reformation. He says, quote, Finney believed that human beings were capable of choosing whether they would be corrupt by nature or redeemed. <laughs> Referring to original sin as an anti-scriptural and nonsensical dogma. Now, it's important to know that Finney was also a lawyer. He was an attorney, so he had a very logical mind and it, you know, it reminds us of the scripture that says that that uh, it's not the wisdom of this world. The natural man receiveth not the things that be of the Spirit of God; they're foolishness unto him. So, in really clear terms, Finney denied the notion that human beings possess a sinful nature. And not only did he abandon the doctrine of justification. Uh, which really made him a renegade against a renegade against evangelical Christianity. He repudiated doctrines such as original sin, substitutionary atonement, um, and uh, he was uh, not merely an Arminian; he was a Pelagian, but he was an enemy of evangelical um, Christian orthodoxy. Is what he was. And this sovereign drug of Arminianism can be seen as a potent and pervasive potion coursing through the veins of our churches today. I mean, to believe in the power of man and the work of regeneration is a great heresy of Rome. You know, and, and uh, see, the thing of it is, if you think about this, look at what followed. Well, what followed was Dwight L. Moody. I mean, we now have the Moody Bible Institute, the seminary that puts out thousands of seminarians, seminarians uh, promoting uh, semi-Pelagian and Arminian doctrine. You know, um, now Bright- Poppin was a pastor in Brighton, England, who came against the L. Moody. Quote. Disclaiming the bigotry, I'm bound to say, I'm, I'm opposed to the religious movement of Moody and Sankey. I oppose to it because I fail to see what Moody so confidently asserted that the present work is God's. Every religious movement must be judged more by its doctrine than by what we usually see parading around. The teachings of its leaders must be brought to God's word. It's truly awful to see the dishonor done to Christ by the preaching and singing of these evangelists. You know, Christ is knocking and has knocked many times at the heart of every person. If he desires to dwell in this or that particular heart, what shall hinder, assuming that it is the will of God that every creature should be saved? Men have made the conversion of sinners an art. And we resorted to all sorts of unscriptural methods to com- to complete their end, you know. When when the Bible says, "I kill and I make alive," they are madly bold in their efforts to rest God's special work in their own hands, you know. 
And they say, we have this new doctrine. It's called singing theology, sudden conversions, the inquiry room, the counselors, sensational advertisements, all kind of crazy means to bring people uh, and softly and tenderly call them to the Savior, you know. And so, anyway, Moody and Sankey were on the cutting edge of decisionism, hyper-evangelism, a new gospel, not the gospel of grace. It ignored the sovereignty and power of God and the dispensation of His grace, and it put the salvation in the hands of a person's own free will. And uh, so as a result of that, especially Moody, Moody had a a huge impact on Spurgeon. I mean, and I'm, I don't want to get into that. I mean, I've, I'm already going to be, you know, thrown under a bus by 90% of the people that read this. And if I say anything derogatory about Spurgeon, because after all, he is, quote, the prince of preachers, end quote. Which should oh, be enough. To, oh, heck, go ahead and say something, Bob. Well, well, it should be enough to to raise the eyebrows of a person when all you have all these evangelicals calling call, calling Charles Spurgeon the prince of preachers. Charles Spurgeon was uh, was uh, semi-Pelagian, and somebody just left. Maybe <laughs> I don't know, no. but that's what semi-Pelagianism will do. It will absolutely corrupt the doctrine of sovereign grace, you know. And and Spurgeon saw it firsthand. He called it the trickle down, and he came against uh, he came against um, somebody's ringing me. They don't like this. Uh, I just hit a, a dead. I just hit a, a, a hot button there, uh, Monica. <laughs> but oh, I'm, I'm getting a lot of people hitting that one. Okay. Well, I'm sorry, folks. You know, I read Spurgeon. I've read Spurgeon. I've, I've read Morning and Evening, and I've read some of his devotions. My dad loves Spurgeon. But the problem is, Spurgeon invited D.L. Moody into his pulpit the, at the uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle there in England, where, by the way, you know, Spurgeon had a mega church. It said over 5,000 people. And the Bible says that if you, uh, you know, few will be that find it. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. And so, West, you know, Army, you know, Spurgeon started preaching the doctrines of sovereign grace in the morning and the Pelagian free will doctrine at night. He was schizophrenic. If there was barbed wire on the fence, he would be in a lot of pain. That's all I can say. But I'm not going to spend too much time on Spurgeon, but as we move forward, we see that this whole Arminian doctrine got in the Pentecostal charismatic movements. I mean, John Wesley's Arminian teachings came full circle and resulted in the Pentecostal movements in the United States. Because it started, the holiness movement started in the sinless perfection or entire sanctification movement. And then it it started and it, it progressed into this Pentecostalism and third wave, you know. But a lot of people think that Pentecostalism actually began in the United States, but it really didn't, because it was a product of Methodism and Anglicanism. I mean, uh, do you realize that uh, John Wesley, before he started his own movement, was an Anglican? And his mother... Um, 
began to start, Susanna Wesley, began to decide that she was more capable of teaching than the church. So she started having little Bible studies in her home. The woman circumventing the authority over the man. And uh, I, it's it's very well known that John Wesley had a very, very rocky road with, you know, with his wife because he was still holding on the skirts of mommy. And it's pretty pretty prevalent how that all happened. But uh, let's just move forward now. Uh, the Dictionary of the Pentecostal Charismatic Movements records that in 1904 and 1905, Reports came to Los Angeles of a substantial revival that was taking place in Wales. And it was associated with a guy by the name of Ethan Roberts in Chicago. The holiness publisher Shaw was the author of The Great Revivals in Wales. <laughs> and it was, re it was widely read in the Los Angeles area in 1905. And people who read this book began to try to mimic it. They established cottage prayer meetings. And before long... We had Pentecostalism alive and well in North America. In fact, he says a quote from the preface written for Frank Bartleman's book, What Really Happened at Azuzu Street. <laughs> That's where it's supposed to all happen there in L.A., Los Angeles. Quote, to the praise and glory of God, the Azusa Street revival brought glory to no man. As testimony, this no man's name is connected with it. However, it can be safe. He said that no more faithful witness to its events could be found than Frank Bartleman. No man, eh? And so it says, in fact, it can be argued that Azusa Street was not as Pentecostals now, it's just a spontaneous revival, not a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, but was initiated by even Roberts in Wales with his correspondence with Frank Bartleman as to how to do the whole deal. Okay? So that's how the Pentecostals came to Los Angeles. It was because of the Wales' influence of, of Bartleman. And of Ken, we see that there's also a linkage to Jesuitism and their sovereign drug Arminianism. You know, it's a solemn matter if it's God Almighty Himself who sends illusion upon those who receive not the love of the truth to those whom He has chosen, He says. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because. God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation and belief for the truth. God's people are not going to ultimately, I said ultimately, be ensnared by apostate movements which masquerade as revivals, nor will they succumb to the sovereign drug of Arminianisms purported by the Jesuits. And so, um, you know, and now we go fast forward to today. We see that this is, uh, I mean, this has happened we just had uh, Richard Bennett on talking about evangelicals and Catholics together and the influence of the Arminians in that movement and how that uh, it has now become full circle with people like J.I. Packer, who wrote a book, Knowing God, which, which when I read that book, it was a phenomenal book. But then he later joined with the likes of John Newhouse, Dr. Bill Bright of Campus Crusade for Christ, um, Avery Dulles, <laughs> who's a cardinal, Jesuit. Uh, Jim Colson, who went to jail and then became, quote, born again through the revival movement, making a decision for Christ. James Dobson, the broadcaster on Focus on the Family, 
who was invited to Vatican to have mass with the Pope and uh, evangelical institutions like Wheaton College and Gordon College in Massachusetts who are now inviting uh, Catholics to come and speak on, on campus. Um, and you see people like you know the late Jesse Miranda, Assemblies of God, and John White at Geneva College, um, and uh, you know all of these people under the watchful eye of the Jesuit Cardinal Idris Cassidy. Who's Idris Cassidy? <laughs> He's the head of the Rome's Pontifical Council for promoting Christian unity. <laughs> And all these people that were involved, the evangelicals and Catholics together, were being superintended by Jesuit Cardinal Idris Cassidy, the head of the Rome's Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity. Um, and so we see the Jesuitical influence there. And so the Counter-Reformation was uh, very effective. This uh, Arminian uh, drug has done wonders for the Jesuits and the Roman Catholics. And we now see this ecumenism has taken over the world. World Council of Churches, um, and we see the National Council of Churches, the Evangelicals and Catholics together. Now, one time, just to show you how far people can come, I'm going to read a quote from Spurgeon, you know. Spurgeon at one time held to these wonderful doctrines from his Metropolitan Tabernacle. At one time he believed, you know, in the uncompromised Word of God. He says, quote, it is no novelty then that I'm preaching no new doctrine. I love to proclaim these strong old doctrines which are called by nickname Calvinism, but which are surely and barely the revealed truth of God as it is in Christ Jesus. By this truth, I make a pilgrimage into the past, and I go, I see further after father, father after father, confessor after confessor, martyr after martyr, standing up to shake hands with me. Were I a Pelagian, or a believer in the doctrine of free will, I should have to walk for centuries all alone. Here and there, a heretic of no very honorable character might rise up and call me brother. Of course, he's alluding to people like Pelagian and Arminius. But taking these things to be the standard of my faith, I see the land of the ancient people with my brethren. I behold multitudes who confess the same as I do and acknowledge that this is the religion of God's own church. Um, well, I think that we have to uh, uh, kind of conclude this with the thought that uh, we hear the, the scripture often in Jeremiah 6.16 quoted, uh, but I think it's appropriate to end this. It's, Thus saith the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein, you shall find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk therein. Now I want to I read something. This is only two pages, and I think it's phenomenal. This is called... By the way, this is in the epilogue. This is not in the main part of the book, um, The Foundations Under the Tax, The Roots of Apostasy by Michael D. Simlin. This is in the epilogue. It's the last two pages in 230 and 231 of the book. It says, How Understanding the Doctrine of Election Changed My Life, a Testimony of a New York Homemaker. Quote, 
I was raised in a Lutheran church, but it was not until I was 23 and read Steps to Peace with God, a tract by Billy Graham, that I desired to know the Lord Jesus. I went through the steps and began my life with Christ. Sounds like the 12-step program. Throughout my walk, I always had a fear of God as I was raised with, and I always wanted to please him. However, I also thought of Jesus as my friend causing my relationship to be causal. Something was missing. A certain intimacy was just not there. There was no desperation to know him. There was no hunger for his word. I would read it simply because I knew that I should, but I would get nothing from it. I presumed that somehow this was my fault. I must have had some great sin that was in the way. I began to ask the Lord to show me what I had done and why I was not uh, desperate. And one night, not long ago, I went to the home of a fellow sister and the Lord to study the Word together. And while she had been called to the telephone, I asked the Lord again to show me what was wrong. <laughs> he showed me myself in a fire and he is pulling me out. I thought of Zechariah 3, 2, which says in a part, is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? I was horrified at my response, which I saw next, saying, Thanks, Lord. I stood up, brushed myself off, and went on my merry way. This was much too casual. I could see that there was pride there, but I didn't know the root of it. Still, I did knew that somehow this was the heart of that which was the obstacle. From this point on, I thought I needed a revelation of hell, a fuller understanding of what I'd been saved from. I began to pray earnestly for this. What I received instead was a revelation of the cross. I suddenly had part of what I'd asked for, a hunger for the Word of God. I began to read the Gospel according to John, where I began to hear the, quote, doctrine of election coming through. I understand that I did not save myself, and my salvation had nothing at all to do with the steps I'd followed when I was 23. Once I understood this, the word opened up even more, and I began to see more. James 4, 6, which says in part, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble, and suddenly opened up to me, and I understood what that meant as well. I understood that even my repentance wasn't possible without him, as he had to first show me what I need to repent of. He had to turn my heart to him in brokenness. It was his goodness that led me to my repentance. As it says in Romans 2, for the goodness of God leadeth thee be to repentance. This was what I needed to finally destroy my pride and rid myself of any notion that I had saved myself. In my life, I'd gotten married. I'd given birth to children. I'd have lost a parent. I've walked with the Lord Jesus for 14 years, but nothing has ever impacted my life as knowing that he chose me, knowing he is sovereign, assures me that he will do all that he has promised. I know that he doesn't have to depend upon me for anything, not even to respond to my own salvation, and this gives me peace I have never known. Nothing in my life will ever be the same. Michael? Yeah, that's interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, uh, a couple things that I would think we should bring up a little bit, and that would be about the, uh, as we lead to this, uh, what's going on, uh, not only the ecumenical movement, but let's think about the emerging movement a little bit here and talk about postmodern church that we're dealing with. What do you have to say about that? I think, yeah, I think that, I think uh, it would be very, very good if there's any way possible 
to get Richard Bennett on to talk about the emerging church movement because he's very, very much involved in exposing that. And uh, if that's basically, that's what we're looking at at this point too. We're looking as far as as far as the Arminianist, quote unquote, Protestant or uh, churches out there. That's what we're looking at. This emerging movement, emerging yeah, church so, movement. And, and the the key players in that, you know, I can I can name a few of them. Of course, uh, is Bill Hybels. Um, he's uh, you can you can uh, Google Bill Hybels and find out, you know, how involved he is in that. Uh, Rick Warren, of course, has what is called the uh, Purpose Driven Nations. Now, you, know, you yeah. can start out with start out with a purpose-driven life. He's a big part of the emerging church movement and to bring the, uh, it's called the new, new, new evangelicals is a term you'll hear a lot, new evangelicals. That's a term that says that there's no need to further uh, uh, propagate the gospel to Roman Catholics because they believe the same thing we do uh, in this new document that has been uh, uh, signed by both both parties and both leaderships, including the Anglican Church, by the way, as well as the Lutheran Church. Um, so you have the United Methodists, which is a very large movement. The United Methodists is the largest contributor to Rome. They contribute more money to Rome than Roman Catholics. <laughs> okay, uh, you have you have the <clears throat> New Evangelicals together, and now you have. <clears throat> The new home coming home movement. The coming home movement is a movement that is uh, skyrocketing in its uh, uh, monetary budget as well as its influence over uh, the evangelical churches as well as the World Council of Churches. The coming home movement is to come back home to Mother Rome and yeah. to learn to learn how to. Uh, do the rosary, to learn how to participate in the Stations of the Cross, to learn how to uh, participate in the Mass, as well as to um, uh, give adoration to the Holy Father. And so, uh, and I I say that word, you know, with the the utmost despicableness. But but that's what the, the new emerging church is, is to bring all these movements together into a world Church and that includes pagans and that includes atheists. You know what Pope Francis said about atheists: as long as they had sincerity of heart, they would be in heaven. And that also includes Jesuits and it also includes, uh, of course, um, since we're a Judeo-Christian nation, <laughs> also includes, you, you can't leave out Judaism. And also, you have to include Confucianism and Buddhism and paganism. And uh, it's like Michael Savage says, the new emerging church is a church that is a wagon wheel, and all the spokes lead to the same source, God. Whether you call him Allah, whether you call him Lucifer, whether you call him Jesus, whether you call him, you know, Madonna, or whoever... Uh, you know, it's all in the mind. It's all perception. You know, evidence doesn't matter. And so that's really the emerging church merge. It's mysticism. It's, um, 
it's well, good. It's, I you bring this up because it's good to uh, lead into this. Uh, what I want to read, it's very short. Uh, it's from somebody I know personally. Um, I sent him a video about, uh, not a video, actually an audio sermon about uh, the plagiasm and plagiarists in uh, uh, Augustine, Augustine. And uh, that's what he said. He said, uh, I'm not interested in the whole Augustine, Calvin, slash Plagius slash Armenian theology stuff. For me, it all misses the point of knowing God by daily personal revelation of him. God revealing himself to us by word, prayer, worship, spirit, and the five uh, senses of taste, touch, smell, sight, hearing, <clears throat> Well, what I think doesn't really matter anyway. Sorry, that's what it says. <laughs> but anyways, uh, this uh, and this is the typical response from this person I get. Anyways, it starts out and ends this way. It totally misses the point every time. So, but regardless of that, think about what he just said here. He said uh, that this whole theology stuff between. Uh, uh, Arminianism and Calvinism uh, misses the point. And I think this is part of the, what uh, now we go to this uh, with the postmodern church and with the emerging church and what what this is what's been going on is this. And this he's a fine example of somebody who now after all this time has ended up being in, in the Eastern Orthodox Church. By the way, he's, and that's what's led him this. But let's think about what he said here. He said that this is the point of knowing God by, by daily personal revelation of him. Exactly. God revealing himself to us by word, prayer, worship, and spirit and the five senses of taste, touch, smell, sight, and hearing. Personal experience. Spiritual exercises spiritual formation, and this whole idea of having a daily personal experience. And I understand the need for it. I understand the want for it. But is it what he's talking about real? No. Or is this vain imagination? Again. I mean, it goes back to, uh, I'll tell a little story. There's a fellow, his name is uh, uh, Alden um, Sproul and he was I used to go to church with him yeah. Summit View Church of the Nazarene yes I actually attended this uh, you know I've been through it folks I mean you know nothing but the truth I was on that search for a long time I think we've attended 140 churches I, you know we've been to Holy Ghost and Fire I mean we've been through the mill <laughs> we were looking for the truth and we found it and it was in, it's in Jesus Christ that's who it is in but anyway uh, Alan Sproul was a chaplain in a hospital and he invited us over to his house and you know he had a master's degree in theology at the time was working on his PhD and uh <clears throat> Um, he got his PhD and he moved to California, you know, and, and, and uh, the land of fruits and nuts, 
<laughs> anyway, no. <laughs> anyway, uh, Michael Savage calls it. Rob Bell. Know, Rob Bell. Is that what you're talking about? Was his name? <laughs> <laughs> Mike, Michael Savage. It? Yeah, I know Bob Bell. Michael Savage, you know, he he uh, he calls he lives in San Francisco, calls it San Francisco. Yes, but sir. no, you go down there, and he goes down there, and he, he becomes the head chaplain over several hospitals. And he started what he called meditative, contemplative, labyrinth prayers. Okay, was and like, just ha- like Unity Church. I had one of those in our parking lot. Absolutely. And you go now. He has developed a park, just like in Unity, and they have these very, very expensive. I mean, a lot of money goes into these building these labyrinths, these expensive places to do meditative prayer and walk while you pray and have a special revelation from the Holy One and so on. And the problem with it is absent of any doctrine. You know, it's it's all about it's we're in the me generation. And when people go to pray, they pray from the standpoint what can God do for me? You know? Not not how how can I uh, properly follow the mandates of Scripture and say, you know, the to pray to God in a way that's pleasing to Him, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will will be done. I mean, it will be done. In earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. And so on. So, that's exactly right. You're right on. And Bob Bell and all of these, you know, these people that are involved in the um, in Knights of Malta, and, and we know who those people are and their Jesuit influence uh, that's over them, and the Masonic Lodge and the Grand Architects of the Universe, and, and the New Age uh, Christ consciousness and the, uh, transcendental meditations and the uh, Christ within you and and uh, you know the uh, out of body experiences and the yin and the yang and the uh, Jungian psychology influences and and all of this stuff is just so prevalent in this you know now the new evangelicals are just I mean they would fit right in with unity I mean they really would that's uh, you know if it feels good do it. You know, the only thing, the only absolutes in the new evangelical movement is that there aren't any. You know, that's the only absolutes. There aren't any absolutes. So, well, you know, there's a, 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 a guest here that asked the question. He asked the speaker what his opinion is about the greasy Pentecostal snake handler Ted Cruz. You want to start? <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, we know who who has influenced Ted Cruz, don't we? Yeah. And we know where to, we know where his roots lie. I mean, all paths lead to Rome, folks, and that includes the Pentecostals, by the way. I mean, I've talked to some people very high in the uh, Assemblies of God movement. Um, some of you know a little bit about that and the relationship oh, that I had with the state of Missouri in my case, and so on, and. The fact that the 700 Club came to Kansas City and interviewed me and stuff like that, and uh, Pat Robertson and uh, 
And uh, I've been at Benny Hinn conferences, okay? I've been where Benny Hinn's throwing people across the stage. You know, I've seen firsthand. I mean, I, I've seen um, the absolute power of Satan exhibited in these uh, organizations. And it's demonic. It has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit, you know. Good morning, Holy Spirit. Benny Hinn wrote that book, you know. he It's the furthest thing from the Holy Spirit, you can't buy the Holy Spirit. Other people tried it in the book of Acts, you know. And the thing of it is it's um, influenced by uh, money. You know, I shared this before, but I had a, a friend of mine who, uh, his his last name's Phillips, too. There's a lot of Phillipses out there. Yeah. <laughs> this, this, this guy's name is Tom Phillips. He's He's a black guy, good buddy of mine. We used to work together. And we'd carry walkie-talkies around. We had a, we were overseeing uh, summer youth programs, and they call was this a white Phillips or a black Phillips? So we had some fun with that. But uh, he he um, he was in a Jerry Falwell um, conference, and he was one of the people that was uh, collecting the funds in that conference. And uh, they had the big Kentucky Fried Chicken buckets that they used to collect the offering. And when they got all the buckets collected, they went in the back room and he said, Larry, I'm telling you those buckets were just for piles and piles and piles and piles and piles of money. And so, you know, we see, in answer to your person's question, um, I was recently talking to someone who's very close to me, (laughs) has some, you know, some connections and, and uh, he told me that Ted Cruz uh, has an access of one organization with $300 million that they gave him. Just one organization gave him $300 million. That's a lot of money for one organization. Okay. And uh, you can draw your own conclusions what organization that might be. But see, the thing of it is money means nothing to some people. And people talk about, you know, the election and all of that, and who's going to be president, who's going to be that. Look, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You know, uh, there was a <laughs> – there was a uh, – uh, and you've, you've heard it before, you know. I was recently talking to my dad, and, you know, he says, you know, flip a coin. You know, there's not a dime stuff. There's not a dime's worth of difference between any of the candidates because they all answer to the same entities. That's what people need to understand. You know, and uh, the reality of it is Christ is king over it all. <laughs> That's the reality of it. He raises them up and he brings them down. My counsel shall stand. I will do all my good pleasure, calling a ravenous bird from the east. You know, he works all things after the counsel of his own will, not the free will of man. And people think they have all this power, you know. You know, Trump Trump reminds me of a spoiled brat. Hillary reminds me of a whore at that. You know, and I could go on right on down the list, every one of them. You say, well, why are you so negative? Why are you so... No, I'm into reality, okay? Christ has raised these people up so that his name might be declared throughout all the earth. That's what I'm doing right now is declaring the name 
and exalting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He's done it all. When he says it's finished, it's finished. You know, you know, my my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, and I'm not talking about a secret rapture either, you know. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. On Christ's solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And so that's that's where that's that's what separates out, you know, the true believer who is born again by the Spirit of God, chosen in him from the foundation of the world, and all these other movements out there. Why do you think these other movements uh, so hate the doctrine of election? That's a good question. Why do you think they have such a vehemence against those who speak against the free will of man? You know. So there's your kind of your there's sort of your uh, your your poop detector, okay? When you're talking to people, that's your poop detector right there. The first thing I do, or I used to do this all the time, if someone called me on one of my messages on sermon, before we even got into dialogue, I'd ask him, hey, I, I just have one question. Well, we get into a lot of a real long, you know, dialogue. You know, could you could you just give me? your understanding interpretation of the ninth chapter of Romans. And I would go right down to where the pedal meets the metal, the children not being yet born, not having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, and listen to the volcano erupt. That's all you have to do. Okay? Very rare will somebody call and say, I embrace that wholeheartedly because it's the Word of God. Very rarely. So anyway, I kind of leave on that. I don't have a whole lot more to add. I think you did an excellent job. You think you did an excellent job of uh, explaining the history of, uh, in in a very short, brief (laughs) uh, hour and some minutes, but almost two hours, but you know, of two thousand years of history of Christendom and the division, the line between God's, you know, the sovereign God, the belief in the sovereign God, and and um, the free will of man, and, and it's the same thing, you know, back to the garden, even. So, I find it fascinating, you know, this you know, that this is where the division line it really comes down to that what they conveniently call. Uh, Calvinism or Arminianism. Yeah. And uh, even that is a form of mind control if you think about it. So, you know, think about it. A guy like myself has to go through all this, and I'm grateful for all the things I'm learning from you and others like you. Uh, but simply, it could have been put there's, we have a sovereign God, and He's in control of all things, and or not. If you don't believe that, then it's, it's free will. And you have a right to do whatever you want, and uh, that's what it really comes down to. And uh, uh, I don't know if I did I explained that very well, but uh, the thing is, is this is the division. This is what this is Christianity in a nutshell. What, what camp will you be in? And uh, it, 
clearly, if you're one of God's elect, you in the day, you're in his camp regardless. You're not going to have much of a choice. He's going to make sure of that. And then um, there's all the rest. And it's profound is to realize that there's all the rest. That's really... So, you know, I guess one of the things is, well, how does one now live a life in a world knowing what we what you know um, and not being becoming pharisaical, self-righteous, and pompous. Of course, God will make sure of that if you're one of his elect anyways. But um, I think it's a good question and maybe something to talk about in the future. How to live in a world, an Arminianist, reprobate, free will, uh, self-centered world, how did we live in it? Of course, we know what that is. In the end of the day, it's focusing on our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And of course, He's going to do that for us too. He's going to help us with that as well. But well, be a good conversation. Can I, can I can I respond to that? I uh, sure. I think I think that um, you know. First of all, I'll be the the very first to admit that um, I'm pompous and proudful and and full of sin and uh, in need of God's continual grace in my life. Um, you know, but that being said, <laughs> I will also say this, that for the people that will not admit it publicly, that attack people who are promoting this, will accuse them of that very thing. In other words, because someone is, like I've already stated, because someone is strong in the doctrines of grace and uh, and uh, unwavering in those doctrines, um, they are the most attacked. And they're, they're, all kind of false allegations are made against them of being pompous, of being, we've already stated, hyper-Calvinistic, uh, hard-shell, uh, Unsensitive, uh, uh, not not you know, sensitive to people, and all unfeeling, and and all of this, you know. But the problem is, the scripture says something contrary. It says that the time will come when they will no longer endure strong doctrine, but they'll heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they will be turned unto fables. And so, what happens is when you have someone that's coming against. Uh, those fables, when someone comes against C.S. Lewis or comes against, you know, uh, Star Wars or comes against the Passion of the Christ or comes and speaks up against Rick Warren or comes and speaks against D.L. Moody or, or, or actually points out the problems with John Calvin and his sacred water and throwing water on infants' heads or whatever it is, <laughs> then they are, then you are pompous proudful, self-centered bigot. Well, you know what? My conscience is clear before God. That's the only thing that matters. And uh, I am accountable to God and God alone. And uh, I, I, you know, he's my priest. He's my prophet, my priest, and my king. And he said, we're all prophets, priests, and kings, by the way. We don't need a little pope. Uh, to where we go confess our sins, and so that's my response to that. I think that you know people that that lay those kind of charges against people often are are what I call in the closet Arminians. 
There's a lot of in the closet Armenians. They'll they'll say out in the front, I believe in the doctrines of sovereign grace, you know. But when push comes to shove, they're they're either semi-Pelagian or they're in the closet Armenians, and they don't want to come out of the closet. Uh, they have they want to be on both sides of the fence. The problem is, like Spurgeon is the barbed wire in the middle is the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it's going to prick you if you're one of God's elect. Yeah, so. absolutely. Well, that would be a good place to end. So, okay. Thank you, Larry. You did a great job there. I think you did a masterful job, and uh, I'm very grateful. And I'll praise Well, thank you for the God. opportunity. Thank you yes. for the opportunity. And it wasn't anything I did. If anything I said at all, it, it didn't come from me. And anything that I said that was wrong did come from me. So, the flesh. <laughs> okay. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.